I love the East, I love the West, and North and South, they're both the best. But I'll only go there as a guest, cause I love being here with you. I love the sea, I love the shore, I love the rocks, and what is more, with you there they'd never be a bore, cause I love being here with you. Welcome to Wattcast. I'm journalist Alex Cohen, and today we welcome vocalist Stacy Sullivan, a multi-Mac winning performer whose signature warmth led Stephen Holden of the New York Times to call her a thoughtful and subtle singer. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you, Alex. You are one of eight children. Yes. Born in Oklahoma. Tell us where. <clears throat> well, I was born in Boggy Depot, Oklahoma, and I'm the seventh of eight children. And uh, I wound up, we wound up in several, Wilberton, Oklahoma, and then we wound up in, Oklahoma, in Norman, Oklahoma, where I grew up. And then I went to Tulsa University. And as soon as I graduated from college, I left for Los Angeles. Back up. <laughs> so you were raised on a farm. Well, I was born on a farm. Did you have farm home. chores? Um, my father raised cattle not very successfully. So when I was a year old, um, my dad got a job with the Agriculture Stabilization Conservation Service in Atoka. We moved to Atoka, and I lived there until I was five. But we lived in the, the city, <laughs> the town of Atoka. So I was pretty much a city kid. The first four kids in the family were definitely um, farm, kids. farm kids. They lived on the farm, and, and the second four, I think you would call us more of the, the city kids. We grew up in... In, in Norman. So they're kind of two different families. And when did the Sullivan family <clears throat> singers begin? I think I, I, you know, you should ask my mom, but I think I was about five, four or five years old when we were asked to sing at a tent revival. And I think it was in Memphis, Tennessee. And um, my sister KT is a very well-known cabaret person, and she's always been just, you know, tuned into something else. Even in Oklahoma, she was trying to find songs for all of us for this this concert. I think I was five, she was probably 15 years old, and she found this great song. It was called Put Your Hand in the Hand. Do you remember that? No. Put your hand in the hand of the man oh, that's yes. still the one. So she gave this to a little four or five-year-old child, and she rewrote the lyrics. And uh, it comes to the end of Daddy lived his life with eight kids and a wife. You do what Perfect. you must do. So she gave this to me. And I was the, the youngest, and I was singing this fabulous song. And Heather and KT were singing back up. They were going, do wah, wah, wah. And they gave themselves a little choreography. So, of course, you know, it would bring the house down. Yeah. Because I was, you know, what... How tall are you? So all of you did this? The whole family did this? The whole family, except for my little brother, Sean, um, was too young, did the family concert. Was that one concert, or did the Sullivan... You went on. it started something. We became the Singing Sullivans, and we traveled all over the South and the Midwest throughout my childhood, and we did things from Jesus Christ Superstar, and uh, my brother sang uh, Jeremiah Was a Bullfrog. So not strictly gospel stuff. Well, KT tried to find some connection. And where yeah. were you singing? In town halls or concert um, halls or churches? churches? Churches. Churches and tent revivals. There's a one flyer from my childhood where we were singing at a tent revival where a man straight from prison talked about his mission in the, 
in the jails with weightlifting. He, it was just, I'll try to find that for you sometime. It's just, it was crazy, but it did, it did uh, bite us with the performing bug. You know, when you're that young and you have a reaction like that, and especially in church, because it was, you're not just singing, you're not performing, you're talking to people and you have a message. And I think that translates into what I do today, it even, even does. though I'm not religious. I really feel like you have to have something to say. And it affected me very deeply. And to be able to see people moved by what you're singing, and to see them touched or to, to get them to laugh. or And none of you had singing lessons. Uh, my mother is a brilliant singer. And she got great lessons when she was, I think she was 18 when she started studying voice. But her big message to us when we were growing up was... Uh, so did she teach you, or did well, she just say sing? <clears throat> you know what my mom's line was? It was, uh, sing sweet, kids. Sing sweet. That covers it. <laughs> well, she wanted us to... Um, not that many people know that uh, a female's singing voice is not mature until she's 35. A male is not till like 40, 45. Even in opera, they don't sing the leading roles until they're much older because they understand that the instrument is not fully formed. It's not, it's not grown up yet. So it's like playing a violin before it's ready. You know? But she didn't teach you to breathe in a certain way? No, she just wanted us to, to sing, sing. She thinks that if you sing, she said sweetly, but naturally. She would hear children ruining their voices by belting. You know, there aren't many people who were in Annie who are still singing. Yeah. Because uh, you, you mistreat it before it's ready. And so when I got into college, I was um, a music major. And, and your I, mother was a professional singer for a while? My mother was, you know, she was raising eight kids on a farm. And she... Before the kids? No, she was 16. She just sang. She was 16 when she got married. But she sang and played the piano. And my mother... Uh, did she teach you piano? Yeah, she tried. <laughs> some of us it took, some of us it didn't. But my mom got married so young that her mother was against it. And her mother told her, she said, if you will wait to have a baby, I'll get you singing lessons. Wow. And piano. So my mother started studying when she was 18 with a brilliant teacher in Oklahoma City. So she had a great technique. She still sounds, you know, she's 80 She'll be 88 in May, yeah. and she still sounds like Julie Andrews when Julie Andrews was really singing. You know, she's got that, <clears throat> excuse me, she's got that great technique, and, um, and she encouraged us to get our training. So I started getting my real training when I went to college, and my voice teacher was so thrilled. And for those of you who don't know, Stacy's mother Elizabeth and her father were married 62 years mm. when he died, alas. Um, I, want so, to fin- I want to finish that sentence. My okay. music teacher wasn't filled, thrilled with me. <laughs> he was thrilled that I had not ruined my voice, that I was singing sweetly, and that it was a, a natural instrument, and that, that it hadn't, I hadn't developed any bad techniques. So yes, my mother did teach us. She mm-hmm. taught us not to develop bad habits. So I think oh, that's cool. important. Yeah. And you are a lyric coloratura? I was a you lyric coloratura. I still have some mm-hmm. of those high notes, but um, no, I... I remember when I was raising my children and um, listening to sounds on CDs and thinking of the voice I wanted to grow old with. And I, saw, I heard Shirley Horn at the Cinegirl. You actually had in your childhood head <coughs> the voice I want to grow old with? No, when I was raising my children ah, okay. in California. I was listening to CDs in the car because I couldn't perform because I was busy. But I was thinking about what I wanted to sound like as I grew older and I... 
you, you listen to, to uh, singers who were lyric caller tourists, and it doesn't sound great when you're 65. And, mm. and really, my goal is to be singing when I'm Marilyn May's age. So I thought, what sound do I want? And, right. um, and I developed, it took me about 10 years to forget my training as a lyric caller tourist to have a more conversational singing voice because um, as much as I love opera I didn't have the dedication I didn't have the discipline mm. to go into opera but, uh, but I wanted something that sounded you know, like, like the folk singers that I heard on the radio and the, the people that really touched me were the people who sounded like they were just talking to me so I guess I'm an alto that's a long answer sorry about that that's okay <laughs> so you went to school <clears throat> at Tulsa University on a full scholarship. In music. In music. Mm. And then you went to California. I did, but that uh, time in Tulsa was so important because I was one of the few vocalists who was a music major, and uh, everyone, was, they were instrumentalists, and they could sight read like crazy, and I had to learn how to play the piano, and I had to learn how to, we called it um, sight screaming, where they give you these lines, they give you a piece of music and you have to sing it. And my trick as a singer was that I could memorize very quickly. You could play me a melody, and I could sing it back very without quickly. sight reading. Without reading at so all. So the ear, strictly the ear. I sang in choirs my whole life mm. in church choirs. So I could they would play it, and I'd memorize it and look at the music and pretend like I was reading it. So in college, mm. you can't get away with that. So these these sight screaming things they would give you made no sense. So you couldn't memorize them. It's like ah 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 ah. See if you knew your minor thirds, and you'd have to read it. Mm. So it was great training, five days a week. I was in music theory for four years, and it helped me dramatically. My, my music teacher, my theory teacher, thought I wasn't going to make it through the first semester. And he was so proud of me when I graduated, you know, that, that I'd gotten that training. And I, st I still use that training, not so much the singing, but the, uh, the technique, mm. I mean, the musicianship, the theory. Sullivan Grit. <laughs> what is with us? We're, we're, we're a little nut, little bit nuts, aren't we? So you went to California for work, I, looking for work. Well, uh, I don't know how personal you want to get. It's entirely in, up to you. I was in a really bad marriage. I got married young, mm -hmm. like my mother, and I left my husband. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought I was going to have kids. I, I was always a mom, and I thought I would have children really young, like my mother did. And um, my husband couldn't have children. Oh, dear. Which you didn't know. Did not know. And he was much older. And he did not want me to be in theater. Ooh. He was very, um, had a different idea of what our lives together were going to be. And I think if I'd had children, it would have been a life that I would have loved. But it, with no children and no chance of creating music or being in theater yeah it was a really sad bleak time for me so I packed up my car and drove to California he said don't use your credit cards you're over our limit oh, God. <laughs> so I started waiting tables at a little restaurant called Sarno's Cafe dell'Opera in in Hollywood in Hollywood the corner of Hollywood and Vermont now was your aspiration musical theater cabaret it was. concert it was, it was musical, musical theater, theater at, that, at point. that point because I'd done Little Mary Sunshine in college and uh, Godspell and then I did South Pacific I played Nellie and um, I just I'd started theater when I was very young I did my first play when I was eight years old at the University of Oklahoma it was The Innocence 
it was based on the Henry James novel, The Turn of the Screw. Mm-hmm. And I, do you remember the movie with Deborah Carr? Yeah. I was that little child that possessed. Ch- oh, good. And you get was, to play possessed. Was, oh, my God. <laughs> it was such a great role. Especially for mm. someone who um, is, you know me, I'm, I'm, I'm the happy one. Yes, you are. Well, and there's a lot that goes on underneath. And even at eight and nine years old, there was stuff going on. Yeah. And on stage, I could have a nervous breakdown, and it was fine. I was screaming. You know, there's that little girl loses it with her with her. Um, it's the exorcism. Governess. Yeah, she's take me away, take me away, and I would scream and I would cry, and it's like, Medea for an eight year old. You know, it was. But I was safe. Felt good. I was safe. And I could do anything yeah. I wanted on that stage. And then walk off and be happy. You know, no one, you know, it was like, as an eight-year-old child, it was like, oh, man, I like this. I like this. It, I like being safe with my emotions. Because in life, if you, yeah. have a, if you have a tantrum, it's not okay. Yeah. But on stage, it's gold. Had you heard musicals? Had you heard musicals in Oklahoma? Did you see musicals in Oklahoma? I or not did until not college. very much. Our home was full mm-hmm. of music. But really, I think it was the Barbara Streisand mm-hmm. Broadway. That was about the only exposure I had. And in college? To musical theater. Well, that's when it, that's when that's you, when it really... It I got Godspell my freshman year, first semester. And, uh, right away. It was just fantastic. Godspell was such a great... Show also happy, happy. Mm. Well, and and characters. We we got mm-hmm. to, the director was one wonderful. Her name was Nancy Vanovich, and she had us playing all of these different crazy characters. And um, you know the the second, you know it was just it was delightful. It was amazing, a wonderful experience. And it made me realize that, especially when I found out I couldn't have children with my husband, that this was something I really loved. I really, and then, you know, Nancy also directed um, Little Mary Sunshine, which is, it's so rare that you get to use your lyric coloratura mm. comedically. And that's the funniest show. Have you seen no, Little Mary Sunshine? No, I never have. Was it Eileen Brennan who originated it on yeah, Broadway? I think so. Oh, it's a funny, funny, it was making fun of the Nelson Eddy, Jeanette McDonald movies, and I got to play opposite an actor named Wade Williams, who's gone on to have a huge career in television and film and Broadway, and we were both just 18. You know, at that time, I was 21, but he was a brilliant actor and just hilarious, and it was it was magical. Did you take theater in California? Um, I studied with Milton Kinsellis. I mean. So you do? <clears throat> yeah, I studied with him. He's he was a wonderful acting coach. I never I've never stopped studying acting. Um, with the like I said with the music I felt like I had to stop training and, mm-hmm. and I feel like at this point in my life I need maybe to go back to be able to do some things dramatically mm-hmm. that I haven't worked out technically in my voice but I never stopped studying acting I think I wanted I had so much of the vocal training in a discipline that doesn't apply to where I am now it does on a deep level. It's my foundation. It's my support. Mm. The breathing. It is things that, that I still use every day are there. So the application was easier in musical theater than it is in cabaret. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes? Yeah. Because in cabaret, we're just, you know, we're this, sometimes we're this close. Intimacy. Yeah. When we're, we're singing, and I can't, you know, I can't use that kind of support that I was using in opera and, and musical theater. Mm. 
So there you are in California. Yeah. And you're earning a living and taking class and auditioning. All the time. And what did you actually get to do in that period? I got, very early on, I got a, a wonderful agent in Hollywood, and I got television and film. I started um, doing some... Non-musical. Non-musical as an actor. And I think, you know, with that eight-year-old experience, I always wanted to be Mm. an actor. And in my family, I mean, it's so competitive. You have all of these people in, you know, country and Broadway and rock and roll. How many of you are professionals now? Four of us are professionals. Another one sings beautifully and does it, you know, a lot. And then I have a sister-in-law who's also a professional. Um, yeah, so I think the singing thing was something, I was like, oh, gosh, can't I just find something that no one else in my family does? <laughs> I thought, I would like to be a, a, an actress, mm-hmm. you know, just a straight actress and not sing. But the singing thing is just something you are. You know, I started, I don't even remember when I started singing. Well, there are a number of early CDs that cover many genres, oh, as if you yes. were putting your water, and your, your toe in the water yeah, in many areas. Yeah. Is, is that what was happening in <clears throat> Well, I was raising kids, and mm. um, I couldn't do a show. I did Phantom uh, when they were little, and that came right after I did mm. a, a movie in Romania. Good grief. And I did a television show in Tennessee, and I did an industrial, and, and I was traveling a little bit, and my kids were young, and um, I came mm. back and I did Phantom, and it was, I found I, I could not multitask. Mm. I was not good at it, and I hated being away from my children. So I pretty much stopped. I did commercials for another 10 years. I made, I made my living in commercials, basically, mm. in television commercials. In but, the days of residuals. Oh, my gosh. And back when they used nobodies like me, people who weren't famous. Yeah. And famous people mm. never did commercials back then. So there was a lot of work for us. And also they didn't use mm. the, uh, the animation. There, were, there was a lot of work. And uh, I could put my kids in the car and drive to the auditions. And then when they got into school, I could do the auditions while they were in school. And when that wasn't enough for me, um, commercials aren't very fulfilling creatively. My husband went down and borrowed the money so I could make my first CD. Because I wanted to express myself. I, I was a good sing- man. I was singing at an incredible... He's a great man. I was singing at this wonderful uh, uh, church in Southern California. I wasn't religious. But I started singing at this uh, Harmony Center for Spiritual Living. And it's kind of an offshoot mm-hmm. of uh, unity. Mm-hmm. And um, the first day they, they asked me to sing, I felt like such a hypocrite cause, because I, I was no longer religious. And um, I was just doing it for the paycheck. And I was having a crisis, kind of like, I felt like a... Of conscience? Yeah. It's like I'm singing about something that I don't, mm-hmm. I don't believe in organized religion anymore. And, and um, that morning, my accompanist had grown up Jewish, the minister had grown up atheist, and the speaker that morning was a Swami who had traveled with Gandhi. Sounds perfect to it me. It was perfect to me. And I, and I told him about my struggle. God by any yeah. other name? And that's what he told me. And I was like, okay, I can do this. Mm. I wound up working mm. for that church as their m- music minister. I was doing two weeks out of the month and finding all these great David Friedman songs that worked at, I mean, it was, it was like my... I needed material, so yeah. I got back into music. And the congregation asked me for a CD. They asked me, they wanted to take the music home. And um, so I did the CD, and one of the... What was the first CD? It was called At the Beginning. And it was me, like you said, it was so many different styles all over the place. But there were 
the last time I interviewed you, you gave me a stack, and there was a country, and there was a jazz, and there was a something that was based in musical theater, and there was rock a, and roll. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you were you were all over the place, yeah. kind of testing things out. I like it all. <laughs> That's my my curse, and also, well, it's interesting. The mm. last album I did was um, a tribute to Marion McPartland, uh, piano jazz, NPR, mm-hmm. and I did it with mm. John Weber, who took over for her. And, uh, on the radio. On the radio. He took over the program, Piano Jazz. So it's very heavy. And I love jazz music so much. I, I grew up in country. I grew up in gospel, which is very simple musically. Mm-hmm. But lyrically, it is devastating. I mean, if you want to cry, just listen to a country western station. They're so beautifully written. And so I had folk mm-hmm. in my background. I had the opera I fell in love with Shirley Horn when I was 22, so the jazz was there. But this last album I just made, the seventh album, I feel like it's finally coming together. And it doesn't feel like I'm going from... This is the Weather album? This is the Weather album. And my Peggy Lee album was very, you know, swing. It's it's fun. The Weather album doesn't have a name yet. Well, we're thinking about... Strolling in the Thunder. It's a lyric mm-hmm. from a David Haydu song that he wrote with Rini Rossness. Mm-hmm. I want something referencing. I want something reference. We're in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I want mm-hmm. the weather reference because it uh, it's what the show was based on. But musically, I'm all over the place. I love my children's mm-hmm. music. I love the li- music they listen to. I love Ray LaMontagne and Ed Sheeran, but I also love Judy Collins and Joni Mitchell and Randy Newman. I also love Sondheim. And I so while you were making all of these CDs and working at the church and raising a family, were you occasionally playing a club or had that not happened yet? I would come to New York um, starting in 2001. I got my first gig in New York. Uh, it was right after 9-11. I was at the Firebird, and uh, I did this show uh, based on At the Beginning. And um, I got the, uh, that's the, my first Mac Award, mm-hmm. was for female New York debut. But while, before the album, I was, you know, playing, I did mm-hmm. my first show in 1992. My daughter was six months old. I was doing a soap opera. In California? In California, at the Gardenia. I was on Santa Barbara, and for some reason I thought it'd be a great time to do a cabaret show. New life. Oh my gosh. But it was it was 1992 and it was it changed the way I thought because cabaret when it's done right looks really easy and it's so hard. If you want to give yourself, you know, if you want to tell a story, you want to have a through line. A beginning, a middle and an end and if you it's almost like writing a play. You mean a show is hard or a song is hard or both? A song is hard. And a show is harder. And do they both have through lines or just a show? Depends on the song. I think I think everyone every song should have a through line, but some songs are just fun, beginning, middle, and end. And you got to have some of those in a show. Mm. So putting the show together, it's seventy-five minutes of just you trying to hold someone's attention. And I, you know, I've been doing, you know, musicals and things like that where it's all written for you and it's oh my gosh I know you know as an actor he's like oh this is where I'm going this is where I start and 
boy, cabaret. It's like you have to almost become a, a playwright. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a writer, but you have to think like a playwright. You have mm. to think. Oh, <clears throat> is that too early for that song to come? Oh, they're not there emotionally. They don't trust me yet. Or yeah. you know, if I open with a dr- dramatic moment, will they? Will that lose them, or will that draw them in? You know? Sequencing both musically and dramatically. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm still not that good at it. You know, sometimes I'm. Ooh, still, I don't know. I'm working on it. It's a, it's a process. But I found you can't, in my experience, I can't have someone else write it. Because if someone else write it, writes it, then I'm, then I'm acting. Does your musical director help shape it? I realize you write the patter because it's you speaking. Yeah. I mean, it's authentically you speaking. Yeah, it has to be for me. But do you have another, another pair of eyes and ears as you're working on most pieces? Sandra Lee mm-hmm. helped me a lot with the Peggy Lee. I wrote that by myself um, during, mm-hmm. uh, from 2008 mm-hmm. till I debuted it in 2011. But Sandra saw it after I'd been doing it for a year. Let's and, talk about the Peggy yeah. Lee. Okay. Why Peggy Lee? Um, good question. I did a show uh, with Paul Horner, who was one of Peggy Lee's co-writers, back in 1993. And I had no idea who she was, but I closed the show every night with a song she wrote called Angels on Your Pillow. Loved the song. Sang it to my children every night as a lullaby. But I didn't really know anything about Peggy Lee until Sidney Meyer walked up to me in 2008 after a, after a benefit I'd done, you know, I, you do one or two songs. <clears throat> and he walked up to me with such conviction. I'd never met him. I was a huge fan. And he looked at me and he goes, you have to do Peggy Lee. And that got me started. A friend sent me her uh, biography and I got lost in Peggy Lee for about three years. I couldn't, I, I ate, slept, drank. Peggy Lee for three years. Peggy Lee, who was also the seventh of eight yeah. children and yeah. grew up in rural, what is it, Dakota? South North Dakota. Dakota. North Dakota. North Dakota. She, um, she threw me for a loop. She was very powerful, very strong. I was so connected to her story that, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I keep hearing my voice. Um, the second show I did, uh, this, this critic named uh, Alex Cohen in New York City. <laughs> had written a review of my first Peggy Lee in New York and uh, Peggy Lee's granddaughter read that review and she googled me and found out that I was performing in Pasadena, California. So my second Peggy Lee show, she came and sat in the front row. We became best friends. She invited me to um, perform at the opening of the Peggy Lee Museum in North Dakota and um, she's, she's family now. But, but Sandra Lee came in about a year after I'd been performing it and saw that I was struggling. Before the Carlisle? Before the Carlisle. No, no. Let me think. I think it was before, it was before the Carlisle. You're right. Because it took another leap mm. at the Carlisle. The Carlisle Cafe, we um, opened their late night series. But Sandra, she's an acting teacher, and she saw me struggling because I'd been doing the show for about a year and I mm-hmm. as an actor I was I was I didn't believe in the material because I had written it and she told me she said Stacy you have to approach this show as if Tom Stoppard had written the pattern 
You have to believe that that writing is good. And she helped me with the script. She took my script from this huge, huge script to a, to a tiny script. I mean, I was saying twice as much. And that's what a good director does. You know, she'll say, and, and Sandra had a big influence. And Mark Nadler has worked with me, too. I've learned so much for them, from them as an actor about how to keep things fresh. We've done the Peggy Lee almost a hundred times around the world. Well, I would dispute your your saying that you were not entirely in it, <laughs> having seen it early oh, on. You, you know, I think that you're very careful about choosing material and tone um, and approach that relates directly to you, no matter what you, you do. You saw it so early, and I was so... I saw it really I was, early. Yeah. I, was I, so, I saw it later at the Carlisle yeah, as well. But it, this, it had changed a lot. It had changed. When you saw it, it was raw. And it was brand new, and I was Nothing flying, wrong with raw. Fly, oh my gosh, mm. I was flying by the seat of my pants, mm. and I was so emotional, emotion, emotional about telling mm. this story that I think mm. in the beginning it was it was working, mm. but then as I ca- I'd done it probably 25, 30 times, you I was, lost it. I was kind of <clears throat> you know, reciting mm. my lines. Da 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 You know, I didn't have the tools, mm. so I went back to class. I studied for another two years. Mm-hmm. Um, after I opened the Peggy Lee, and um, just just to sharpen sharpen the tools, and and also working with Sandra mm-hmm. helped me learn a lot about writing the script, how to taking out the ands and these, and going on little tangents. <laughs> Sandra Lee, she would look at me, and I'd be mm-hmm. telling this story. She goes about someone. She goes, "They're not here. They're not here. You don't need to tell that story." You know, focus. What are we trying to say in the beginning, in the middle? You know, the right. through line. That whole, mm. I've had a lot of help. Yeah. Holly said, "Stacy's nothing like my grandmother. She doesn't try and be like her, but she has a way of getting into a song that casts a spell." My father said, "It's almost like it's the spirit of Peggy Lee reminding us." Mm. And one gathers there's going to be a second Peggy Lee CD down the road. It is, you know, the first. The first Peggy Lee I wrote in New York, about New, you know, for New York, and um, I was so deeply connected to Peggy. I just wanted to tell her story, and I left out the hits. She recorded over a thousand songs, so I wanted to tell her story. I could use pretty much anything I wanted, because she. Well, doing the hits the first time around would have been the easy route. Yes. Which you tend not to do. I don't like the easy route. Um, because there's so many. Well, Peggy did it. Peggy did her music so perfect. Why would I want to tackle mm-hmm. the songs? Because she did the definitive version of is, "Is That All There Is?" Fever, you know, "Come Back to Me," "Hey Big Spender." I and I think also I was at the beginning of this cabaret career. I didn't want. Do you to, consider that the beginning of your cabaret career? My New York cabaret career. I had been dabbling in it. With um, out in California and coming to New York, long enough to feel that you'd gotten your sea legs. I wasn't nervous, um, and I and I'm. I mean, had you made a commitment to cabaret at that point? When I first came to New York, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big believer in the Malcolm Gladwell, ten thousand hours, and I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm still, I'm catching up because I took twenty years off. And I felt like I mean I feel like mm. cabaret is such a unique art form. I'm I'm still a baby in this art form, and luckily, cabaret values older performers. You know I I knew I know that I want to be creative, and there aren't that many places where you can 
be valued and cherished as a as a middle-aged and older woman. I mean, I look at Marilyn May and she's who is 90. a phenomenon. God bless she's her. She's 90 this year and she's still going strong. Let's I, talk about some of the creativity. Let's talk about a night at the Troubadour. Wow. That was such a trip. <laughs> I did you like you liked that show, yeah. didn't you? It was it was a uh, which was for the general public. Um, a night at the Troubadour was a show about Elton John and my dear friend David Ackles. David Ackles was a huge uh, star in the late '60s and early '70s, and uh, Elton John was a fan of David Ackles, my dear friend. And uh, my friend David Ackles opened for Elton John at the Troubadour at Elton John's first North American appearance. And I mean, El- most of us who went to see that show had no idea who no. he was. No, he's, been for, he's almost been forgotten. Elvis Costello, Phil Collins, Elton John, they still believe in his work. His work is so powerful. And um, I didn't find out that he was uh, a recording artist, a star, until I sang at his memorial. He was one of those people who didn't talk about himself. He'd gone into a career in um, musical theater and teaching at USC, and I starred in one of his... um, I played Sister Amy in one of his musicals. How many years after the memorial did you actually put the show together? Oh, David died in... I think it was 17 years. 17 years. Was this regurgitating someplace, or did it just... Something oh, I, I, told, I told his widow, uh, Janice, at his memorial that I would do a show about him someday. And his son, Gio, I told him I would do it. Mm-hmm. And on my first album in 1999, I did one of his songs. Oh. It was called Your Face, Your Smile. And it was a, I had heard the song at his memorial. And uh, it was something I, which I, I needed to do. So it was, it was half, not quite half Elton John and half David Ackles. And it was really my thinking about what is success. Because David Ackles had a very successful life as a husband and as a father and as a writer and as a teacher. And Elton John, same night, and Elton John is this you know, mega, mega star. So you came to it at a point in your life where you were asking yourself that yeah. and circled back to him. Yeah, it was And big. that's why it took that many years. Yeah. What about Separate Ways? I mean, here was a, a show that was theater. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. Was, it was really theater. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that was with Todd Murray at 54 Below. It was about a couple in transition, and Todd and I are the same age, and we look like we could have been high school sweethearts. We're, we love each other very much. But we were thinking about it at our point in life, how it's, it's like a crossroads. We're both around 50, and uh, it's like you have these choices, do it, and, and they're a couple. Do I stay or do I go? And they're, they're questioning that, and we don't really know what's going on with them you know we, we we do different songs we different solos about where we are in life about the breakup about the cheating about you know now that really had an arc oh thank you I, I can't wait to do that show again it's it's a wonderful show and Yasuhiko Fukuoka did the orchestrations he's just he's quite splendid yes he fine. also did the Troubadour show and he uh, also 
did my Cole Porter show that you were also seeing. The Cole Porter is the next one. <laughs> the sultry side of Cole, which was a complete surprise. Um, a unique presentation of, of familiar songs that were artfully arranged and, and vocalized and very often changed the meaning of the song without changing the intention of the writer, I think, which is a quite a card trick. We had the best time with that show. That's one of the first times where someone came to me and said, I want you to do a show. Uh, Mark Nadler came and said, I want you to do a Cole Porter show, which I wouldn't have come up with on my own. Um, up to that point, everything I'd ever done was without mm. anybody asking me to do anything. <laughs> you have to have that thing and just like, I'm going to do a show whether anybody wants me to or not. But this is the first time someone came to me and said, I want you to do. I would lay odds that your first thought was, oh, God, everybody does Cole Porter. <laughs> it was. And, and I don't really do songs that other people do. You know, I'll, I'll manage to put in a few standards in each show so people have something to latch on to. But a lot of times there's songs that people have never, never heard. So Cole Porter, you can't really do a Cole Porter that people So how have. did you come up with this? Really, it's in essence, it's a classical mm. marriage mm -hmm. of Cole Porter. Well, when you're asked to do something, you, I, or when you figure out something that you're dying to do, it's because you have a connection. And Cole Porter was this really wealthy man who married a woman who was even wealthier than he was. And he had this very sophisticated life. I didn't really relate to the Cole Porter that I had seen before. As a person, as a personality. As a personality. I thought we were so different. So I, you have to figure out, okay, where do we connect? Where do we connect? And Cole Porter studied classical music, and I studied classical Which music. Which few people know. And then I found out that he had studied um, classical music with, with Vincent Dandy, and he'd written this ballet. It was a protest ballet in 1922 which fewer people know and it's called Within the Quota they, he was protesting re restrictive immigration laws that had been passed by Congress after World War I it was so timely and uh, it, the New York Times said that it you was, found this in your research yeah the New York Times said that it was the earliest example of a symphony based jazz composition it predated uh, a Rhapsody in Blue by four months. Porgy and Bess? Yeah, Rhapsody in Blue. Mm -hmm. And um, so Gershwin got him to move back because of that. So they are connected with the, with the, um, the classical. So, so I said, okay, maybe we could do some of his songs and, and put them to a classical-type instrumentation. And that's not really what I do either. I, like, I love very modern music. I love contemporary sounds. I love the sounds that my children are listening to. And we've talked about how I'm kind of like this stew that's not quite cooked. You know, I've got all these different pieces from different parts of my life, and it's in a pot, but it's not stew yet. So I started looking at, um, oh, I read this great quote. Okay, a journalist asked him in an interview um, a question about modern music, and he said, I go to the theater constantly to keep in touch with contemporary musical taste. My interest in composition is modern, but I always go back to the classics. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is who I am. In that quote, mm. 
He gave me permission to be me, which is, you know, if, if Cole Porter were alive today, he'd be going to see Dear Evan Hansen. Mm-hmm. He would see the band's visit. He would be incorporating sounds from Afghanistan and Iraq into his music. And I thought, well, thank you, Cole. <laughs> we stayed true to his lyrics and his melodies and pretty much everything else in the show were sounds from... Richly classical. Rap to um, Mm. uh, Ravel. Uh, Because that was the point of the show, was to show the influence Mm. of classical music upon him, but his influence on every, pretty much every songwriter who has come after him. after, And another thing I found was an interview with um, Eminem, who said, he said, um, I'm no Cole Porter. Even Eminem knows who Cole Porter is. But anything goes from the musical ending. It sounds a little bit like a rap song. So I put anything goes to a a rhythm that is very Eminem, and I just lose yourself in the music. The moment you want it, you better never let it go. Times have changed. Good authors too. Who wants to? So I combined Eminem with Cole Porter. You made it was, completely your own. It was fun, and um, I did the new Cole mm. Porter show recently and it just struck me um the easiest way to turn kids off is to not to listen to their is not to listen to their music to not be influenced by what's going on right now and my husband who had a wonderful father who was a great musician said to him one time he's my husband was listening to the beatles in the 60s and his father came in his father was always playing jazz and his brother played with Doc Severinsen, and there were major musicians. He walked into the room, and he looked at my husband, and he said, those Beatles, now they're good musicians. And what that did for my husband's self-esteem, what it did for his relationship with his yeah. father, it's like, oh, my, my dad thinks my taste is good. I'm doing a new show um, on St. Patrick's Day. Um, it's called Chasing Rainbows, and I'm including a song by Kesha, I can be a rainbow, rainbow baby. And it's a great song. Lyrically, you look at it and you go, oh, I can tell my grandkids, you know, that I love this song by Kesha. I don't have grandkids yet. But to stay on top of music, to to find a great song. I did a 92nd um, Street Y with uh, Andre, Andrea Marcovici. The Lyrics and Lyricists? Uh-huh. Back in 2007, I think. But she wrote this show called Did Did the Great American Songbook End in 1962? No. It just takes a little bit more work because we haven't had the luxury of history to figure out what was great. So sometimes we miss, you know. But there are some great songs being written, and that was my goal with the Cole Porter and and, uh, recording this new album. I I think I've found my sound, which is classical, which is country and gospel and folk and jazz. That's not a sound. It, listen to the new album. Okay. <laughs> I think, it, I think <clears throat> the stew is starting to cook. It, it feels like stew now. So you're, you're, you're saying that you are bringing your, your sound to all of these genres, not that they are separate sounds. They are right. separately treated, but you are now... You're now manifesting something that you relate to as as singularly yours. I think I think it's my sound. I don't. Right. 
You know, it was inter- I, the last album I opened with uh, Loving You from Passion, but we did it in a way that was very jazz. But whenever I sing, people think country, because it's just kind of who I am. I'm, a, um, I'm from the Midwest, and it comes through in who I am. So, I, it, you know, a fingerprint. It's just a fingerprint, but everyone's is different. How, it's just that. How can it be different? A snowflake. How could it all? How can they all be different? And I think if you're uni- if you're truly yourself, it won't sound like anybody else. And that's the goal I've always had. Not not to not sound like someone else, but to sound like me. Mm-hmm. And and I'm all these things, but you can't just put the pieces on. And I'm working with a great group of people that really listen to me is that why you chose the weather show to go back to at this point because it is it's really about your family Mm -hmm. i think the weather um the weather working title the working title i think the album may be called strolling in the thunder we did change the sidelight we did Mm -hmm. change the cole porter title because of your review i thought it's called don't fence me in okay thank you it wasn't a good title I'm not, and it, the, the the weather show was um, came out of the first big show I did in New York was Peggy Lee, and then the second one was piano jazz, a tribute to Mary McCartney. So I was doing music about other people, and so all my fans, all three of them, <laughs> came to me and said, "We want a show about you. You know, you're doing shows about other people. We want to know more about you." So this the weather show was called Since You've Asked. And it's based on a Judy Collins song. What I give you since you've asked is all my time together. Take the rugged, sunny days, the warm and rocky weather. Take the roads that I have walked along, looking for tomorrow's time. Peace of mind. I was looking for peace of mind. And to tell a story about my family, which is quite unique, and uh, to tell it with songs that, that meant something to me, not Peggy Lee or Mary McPartland. And um, my daughter agreed to direct it, which was a crucial turning point for me, because mm-hmm. she's a wonderful director, but she doesn't she doesn't impose anything of who she is onto her actors. She lets them find it. So that show was really me trying to find the connectors between all of these different styles. So I did, you know, songs from Randy Newman to Ray LaMontagne to Ed Sheeran to Harold Arlen to Hoagie Carmichael. And we inter- we interspersed some little classical bits. And, and, I loved and the patter was about your family. Yeah, yeah. And so this was really, it was really the next one I wanted to record. Because I did think that it was going to be a, a big leap for me as an artist to... Not a, as a, as a uh, singer to do a show, do an album, which is kind of like the first album, which is just me singing songs mm-hmm. I love. And I've worked with yes, Yasuhiko Fukuoka did these arrangements, which are cello and violin and double bass, guitar and piano. Um, can we go back? No. We, we cannot. I just said yes, did those arrangements. And that's Troy Fannin. I'm so sorry. Oh, Troy. I hope, uh, Troy Fannin did the uh, Since You've Asked arrangements. It's human. And uh, Cole Porter is Yasuhiko Fukuoka. 
But Troy was a find. Troy Fannin was a find by my daughter. She had um, she'd signed up for a Groupon. She was getting guitar lessons. And uh, she met this guitar teacher, and he's young, and he's vibrant, and he's kind, and he's gorgeous. <laughs> she goes, Mom. Never hurts. She goes, Mom, my guitar teacher is hot. She goes, I think you would work really, really well with him. And she said, if you use Troy on this show, I'll direct it. So she brought Troy over. Troy and I, in our first meeting, we did the arrangement for I Get Along Without You Very Well and Landslide put together. And, and we, we're soulmates. He's worked on every show pretty much that I've done since. And it was, it was one of those situations, though. It was just working very organically. Like, let's figure out. He brought me Ray LaMontagne, you know. But it's, it's a very emotional show. And, um, and the album is, you know, it's, always, it's my new baby. <laughs> You're most proud of your, your, uh, your newest one. But. How do you feel about the state of cabaret today? Oh, goodness. Thank God for you, Alex. You're you're just still out there doing it. Thank you for well, writing I'm not about the only it. One. Well, it's um, we lost the the New York Times. Stephen Holden retired, and uh, we lost the Metropolitan Room, which was a home for so many of us. Um, I think there's still wonderful. Prior to that, the the Algonquin. Oh, that was huge. And Feinstein's. Well, we have Feinstein's at fifty-four below. Now we have fifty-four below. below. Yeah. But it's not, it's not, um, it's more Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, but over and above the venues, what about, how do you feel Cabaret is, is getting on at this point in its life? Do you feel Cabaret is getting on at this point in its life? I, I feel like um, it's kind of, it's kind of shattered um, because of the, the lack of, uh, venues but in a way that's good to shake it up to make people just try a little hard it's not so easy to to book and uh, maybe it'll make us work harder when I came to New York um, I never got to play the Algonquin I did one night there I did the West on 40 my second album I did the debut there but I didn't get to be hired by the Algonquin and the Algonquin was special because they would hire it's pretty much Valhalla Oh, it was. Well, and what happened was they would hire an artist to do maybe a month. Yes. And they did six, seven shows a week for a month. And if we go back to the Malcolm Gladwell, compare it that, you can get your 10,000 hours pretty. Yes. And they would do it every year. So they would write a new show every year and they'd do it for a month and they get to run it and grow a show. Early on with the Peggy Lee, we got to go to London. Ruth Leon brought us to London twice. And I got to do eight, sh- seven shows in one week, both times. That's good for our a show. Grew. These days. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. Because if you do it, it's not okay. It's not the same doing one night and then two months later doing another yeah. night. Which they mostly are these days. Because you can't get an audience to, you know. But in London, Ruth had her audience. So I got to do seven shows in seven days, and I couldn't believe the way I grew, or the show grew. Mm-hmm. So when I came back from London the first time, I decided to give myself an Algonquin. I became my own Algonquin, and I decided that I was going to write a new show at least every year. And I've done, some years have been two. But I made myself my own Algonquin. 
and I, I would come up with a new idea and because I thought that's the way I think that's the way they grew I looked at the Algonquin artists and they were magnificent every year why <clears throat> and it's not because they were they were gifted <laughs> but they weren't huge stars they were just people like us performers who, who got the opportunity every year to create something new and to push them out of their comfort zone oh my gosh I've got a booking at the Algonquin I need to create a new show. So even with uh, even with this uh, this chasing rainbows that I'm working on, it's pushed pushed me out of my comfort zone. So I've got a I have a new song by the Rolling Stones. So this is not just rainbows. a show for St. Patty's Day. This is a show that you will I'd like go to, on with. Absolutely. Every every time I do a new show, I think I don't want to do a show that I wouldn't want to record. I want it to be a listening experience musically. Mm-hmm. Because as an actor, I can tend to get more dramatic and make it into a play. Cabaret is not a play. Mm-hmm. It's a musical experience with connectors. Oh, it can be a play. Yeah, I think I... Your show with Todd Murray was oh, a play. Told through music. Yes. Oh, and yes. And that was the sure. only... And it, Alex, it's interesting. That's the only show I've ever done without any patter. There was not one word. And that was exciting for me that very few people mentioned that, mm. that there was no pattern. Because, you know, it, when you do a musical... The, the songs were that well chosen. Thank you. That, and we were, that they connected and bridged. And that was a real challenge. But, you know, whenever you go see a musical, the problem is always the book. You know, they always say, it's the book. It's true. So it was easier, in a way, to do separate ways because I didn't have to think about how am I going to connect these. But it was harder because musically it had to be so right on to tell the story without and it cabaret's great. So you like a challenge and you feel that today's cabaret and stop me if I'm misinterpreting um, puts more of a challenge in front of you artists who need to find a place to sing and who need to express yourself in a certain way and absolutely. Well, one thing it's done for me is it's it's forcing me to go out of town more often and I'm you know getting agents and I'm traveling a lot. Because you have to... Getting the work is very hard. Yeah, if you want to make a living at it, yeah. you have to go out of town. And luckily, there are a couple of venues in New York that are really helping me out financially. But, you know, you have to travel. You have to go to... You get to travel. You get to go all over the world and take, take these... I think I've created... Uh, I've written seven shows in six years. God. And I really... And with Todd's, with separate ways, I think it's eight. So it's fun to have those. You have a library, and you can lend it out. And it's fun taking these these shows that we've created to places that don't necessarily get cabaret. What's your bucket list? Professionally. Professionally. Anything I, you have in the back of your mind is someday I really want to. I would really love to get a Grammy nomination. I can't believe I just said that. For did any, I say that out loud? You did. I did. For any particular kind of music? Or this new matter? album, I think, okay. I, think is, um, I think it's really special. Troy, Troy Fannin took um, Stormy Weather and completely de- deconstructed this Stormy Weather with the, the violin and the cello doing battle at the top of it. And then it goes into something that is... I don't think I've heard it before, which is why I'm excited. I don't think it sounds like anything I've heard before. Mm. And it's Troy 
his arrangements have turned that little show that I wrote into something I think is really, I think it's, who knows? But then I'm going to record the Cole Porter. <laughs> so it's, it's always out there. But I'm, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying the, the process so much because I get to hang out in New York with the best people I've ever met. And uh, every day is exciting. And the musicians that you get to go work with in New York, you know, you make a call and they come over and you write a new arrangement. Do you vocalize every day? No. I sing all the time, though. Uh, my daughter said that the other day. She goes, Mom, you're always singing. I don't even know I'm doing it. It's like the thing I wanted to be an actor. It's like, you really, you are a singer or you're not. But no, I probably should get back into class. But right now I'm just having fun. Sounds like you're very busy. <laughs> I am. Well, thank you for doing this. Alex, thank you so much. And thank you for what you do for the music world in New York. Live music is, it's special, it's unique. And to have people out there writing about it, it helps more than you know.